This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Fat Brands, Franklin Fat Brands in the news uh, the last few weeks and over the last few years, man, they are gobbling up, no pun intended, a lot of companies. They just bought the Nestle Toll House Cafe brand and to turn those into the Great American Cookies, which you see in a lot of malls and some other other places. But they've got Johnny Rockets, which I'm a fan of. They've got Marble Slab, Creamery, Twin Peaks. They've got a big portfolio, and it seems like they are aggressively growing. Yeah, they've got a very interesting mix of brands. Um the Zoli's is like sneaky all over the place. I, I think they're all closed down in Orlando. I've never been there, but I, they're in like 28 states. So they've got a bunch of hot dog and a stick, you know. Um, they've got a bunch of interesting brands here. I do like a Johnny Rockets. I think if I'm going, and I haven't been to Fat Burger, but I've not I been to Fat Burger either. I've, uh, I, need I feel to- like I'd, I feel like I'd go Fat Burger if I'd been to Fat Burger. But I love a Johnny Rockets. You can't go wrong in a Johnny Rockets. Yeah, interesting company to watch. Uh, I'm going to uh, meet some of those folks later this summer at their annual powwow in Las Vegas. Spend some time with those with those franchisees and execs. I'm looking forward to that. Good company, fun to watch, a lot of good brands. And on that happy note, let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go supersize. I'm proud to be a bartender. Ain't nothing wrong with that. We need a political revolution. Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. Come on, man. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch coming up on the podcast. Inflation is putting additional pressures on restaurant margins, and some operators are adding additional fees right on the receipt. Good idea or bad idea? We'll take a look. And another celebrity chef has publicly criticized the tipping system. Will celebrity chefs be able to change the conversation on this issue? We'll discuss that as well. And McDonald's announced for a shareholder resolution that it will undergo a civil rights assessment to highlight opportunities for improvement within their system. Is McDonald's just a first step in the process for anti-industry activists? And a respected industry leader and brand has stepped into the national conversation over gun violence. We'll discuss the pros and cons of brands taking on issues and the politicians that drive them. We'll discuss those issues and wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my Align Public Strategies partner, Franklin Coley. And Franklin, a lot of, a lot of media, the, well, obviously the last six months, particularly in the last few weeks, about the pressure that inflation is, is, is exerting on small businesses and, and the, the margins getting squeezed even more than normal. And you know, when these things happen, we've seen over the last few years, when a minimum wage increase happens, you'll always see some, some restaurateur somewhere will put something on the slip that uh, denotes a price increase due to increased wages or a tax thing. We've seen that before, but it seems like more and more restaurants are kind of, uh, you know, transparently passing on those costs to their, uh, to their customers. Article uh, in the Wall Street Journal last week, basically entitled, Restaurants Add New Fees to Your Check to Counter Inflation. Checks now come full of fees from everything from kitchen appreciation to wellness. What do you think about this whole space? Is that, is that necessary? Is that smart? Where, where's your head on that? We, we've seen this before. We saw this during Obamacare. There was an Obamacare kind of tax that was put in a lot of restaurant bills. A lot of people have done it historically as a kind of a political statement, not necessarily as a way to kind of hide a fee. But there's a lot of legal concerns here and also 
you know, potentially kind of reputational concerns here. So depending on how you do this, uh, we've seen a, a number of brands rush into this over the years and get hammered for deceptive or false advertising. If your advertised menu price publicly is X amount, and then you're tacking on this fee at the end, and you're not giving kind of, you're, you're not properly advertising that, you can get hammered there. If you're adding the fee on, you know, depending on how you're doing it before or after taxes, you could, you could have a problem there. And so it seems like a simple solution to just add a little fee on the, on the ticket at the end of the day to, to cover inflation costs. But you have to be careful how you do it. You know, you have to have it in the menu. You have to have it advertised properly. You have to have it notified. You can't just put it in the receipt after the fact. And obviously, depending on what jurisdiction you're in, the rules may be slightly different around this. Tax rules may be different, you know, advertising notice. So different states are going to have different rules. So don't just charge into this space without doing some due diligence. That being said, you know, generally, I think it's kind of a waste of time, but, you know, and, and potentially opens you up to some reputational and legal issues here when you're talking about a couple cents. But certainly there, there are bean counters and marketing folks that, that may have uh, another thought on that, and and that's fine. But just understand, you have some level of potential exposure if you're just slapping that fee on without going through the the proper process to to look at all the 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 issues that could be there. And is you know twenty percent of that fee going into the tip the tip the tip pool, right? I mean, are you is is management taking that fee out before deciding on tip pool? There's all kinds of connotations and threads. I, I, I don't think it's a good look. And this is, you know, my, my opinion, but I am, you know, continue to be, you know, very, very aware that we have a different wage structure in this industry relative to other small businesses and retailers. You know, a lot of our, a lot of our restaurants are paying sub minimum wages. And, you know, so you can, you could say we, we can be accused of having customers subsidize part of our wage base Obviously, the American agriculture system is heavily subsidized. You know, it's not a good look for us. It, it makes us look like we're not cognizant of that. I'm, I'm not a big fan of it either, but for, for different reasons. So as I said, it's, it's not, you know, I don't think it's a great look for us, and, but it's a story that will kind of continue to permeate and pop up as different pressures on the, on, the, uh, on the business model persist, especially in the area of inflation, and we'll be following it. Frank, on an interesting article you saw this week with a leading, I don't know if he's a celebrity chef, but a well-known chef talking about tipping and the conversation around the practice of tipping persists. It surfaces, you know, periodically. Where's the, in a lot of our, obviously a lot of our audience, most of our audience is probably in, in, in you know, leveraging the tip system. Where's the state of play of the tipping argument right now? Well, that's... That was a delicate lead into a very loaded question. You, you know, look, the tipping issue. We, we there's nothing new here. I mean, it, it's it's a it's a reputational issue for us, right? It's it's not necessarily a conversation where we're winning. You know, one of the challenges there is the most recognizable faces of the industry, the Andrew Zinnermans of the world, and yeah, I think he qualifies as a celebrity chef. You know. Are have kind of piled on against tipping, right? And so the story this past week, and it's getting pick up, is that Andrew Zimmerman, you know, basically 
said kind of offhand in an interview that he opposes tipping and he is essentially regurgitating kind of the one fair wage talking points that we've seen a lot of other celebrity chefs uh, regurgitate over the years. And uh, that creates a challenge for us when these are the most recognizable voices in the industry. I would love to have just like one or two celebrity chefs say, hey, tipping's, I like tipping, tipping's a good idea, or, you know, let's let the the waiters and the waitresses decide. Or, you know, we've seen some celebrity chefs nuance recently around that there, and Danny Myers, I think is a good example, you know, where he's in favor of a tip pool that can be shared equitably, right? And we had some rules recently around this. He's not against tipping altogether, you know, he doesn't like it, but if he, if there is tipping, he wants to be a tip pool that's shared equity. That's kind of like splitting the, splitting the baby a little bit. You know, I think, I think every restaurant is different and, you know, I think this works in some restaurants, doesn't work in others. We understand the politic, the politics behind this and what's kind of the driving force, you know, just to having big celebrity chefs like this all coming out against it. You know, it just makes the the hill steeper for us to climb. And that was kind of the development this week. Well, Franklin, speaking of developments, a story uh, that we've been following since it kind of broke last November, the SOC Investment Fund pressuring McDonald's to do a shareholder audit in the wake of statements that uh, were, were accused of being inconsistent with previous days around George Floyd. McDonald's had asked the SEC to basically invalidate that shareholder pro, uh, request, shareholder resolution. They demurred when it went through with it and McDonald's shareholders passed the shareholder resolution asking McDonald's or actually uh, directing McDonald's to undertake a diversity audit, if you will. And then McDonald's made news last week by announcing that they were beginning that process, but they were calling it an assessment, not an audit. How do you read all that? Well, I think the devil is in the details here. You know, I'm backing up for a sec. I think McDonald's is probably one of the best in the restaurant industry in, in, in this space. And, you know, and that's just, I'm just speaking anecdotally from being out on the trail, you know, going to different meetings in different metropolitan areas across the country and having a sense of the McDonald's system. You know, I haven't looked at any data or anything. It's just anecdotal. But we've seen companies like Nike and others that you would think would be on the right on the, on the cutting edge do these audits, deep audits, not necessarily assessments, show deep audits to level things out ahead of EO, EO1 reporting during the Obama years. And, and these companies that you would think would be leaders in this space, they had major issues that they had to do a lot of like kind of leveling for. And so... um. Look, also, Illinois and California-based companies, and, and probably a lot of people when they rewrite the rules at the federal level, are going to have to do increased reporting around this. So this is all coming, right? McDonald's is just going to be a little bit ahead of the curve, maybe because, you know, the Illinois requirements, but because of this shareholder proposal. So that's a long way to get to directly answering your question, Joe, which is the devil's in the details how deep this audit goes. You know, is this just a, a kind of precursory assessment that that looks at the brand and grades it? How deep does the audit go? What's released publicly? You know, what how that whole process works? I think that few companies are going to go through this and they're going 
there's going to be blemishes and there's going to be things that need to be corrected. I, I just, most companies that go through these, even the best of the best, that is the case. And so, you know, the opponents of McDonald's are going to use this to ballyhoo their, the brand. There's no doubt about that. So there's going to be upcoming reputational management challenges here for McDonald's. I have, I have no doubt, but I, I think, you know, knowing kind of the McDonald's team a little bit, I think they will embrace this and and try to rise to this challenge and get ahead of this and address some of these issues. And in doing that, Joe, they end up they may end up in a much better place because we know we're all headed this direction at the federal level, at the state level. A bunch of brands are going to be subject to this. This shareholder proposal and this because it's an assessment and because it may not be super deep, this may help to push the brand to a, ahead of the rest of the field, to a place it's going to and needs to be anyway. And it may be a blessing in disguise in a lot of ways. So I'm going to wrap it there, but I, I think the jury's still out and where all, all this falls, but I don't think it's necessarily doom and gloom for the brand. I, it could be an opportunity to kind of get ahead of things and reinforce some company culture. I, I 100% agree. I think McDonald's has traditionally had a good story to tell in this space uh, but because, you know, they're the big guy, they're going to they're going to be the one that, that's attacked. And I think probably the proponents of this know McDonald's. They're smart. They know McDonald's has a, a good story to tell. But any any actions McDonald's may take uh, will be a platform to push other other companies to make those same changes. They're kind of using McDonald's as that as that proxy. No pun intended. Similarly, when I was at Walmart. We, we, we were best in class on a lot of stuff that we were, you know, beating around about and, you know, made some changes here that were ultimately good for the brand and good for our employees. And it, and it was kind of a blessing in disguise. But really what it did was it, it made the rest of the industry follow suit. And that, you know, play, playing checkers with, you know, McDonald's is, is for now, they're trying to play chess with the rest of the industry. I think they're using McDonald's as a vehicle to get there. So it, it, to your point, it will be interesting to see how all this plays out and we'll be following it as always. Starbucks Watch 2022. Well, Franklin, your favorite time of the week, Starbucks Watch. And two headlines for Starbucks this week. Last week, they went over the 100-unit threshold. And as we taped this, 115 units have voted unionized, 13 rejected, and a handful are still kind of in contest at this, at this point. Oh, and... A major development last week, the creation of a Starbucks fund for backing striking workers to to bolster and support them financially while they're on strike. I'm going to take a breath. Give it to me. Let me let me take let me throw one little more nugget on the on the spread of this. Joe, we're like at 40 states now, like 38, 40, somewhere in that range. We've got elections in like the middle of nowhere, South Carolina happening. So it is, it is crazy how this taken off. So the million dollar strike fund, Joe, I think that's a story of the week. There's a couple, couple different storylines we're following, but that that's the biggie. If we rewind to last week or the week before we were talking about how the company was getting more aggressive and how union organizers were complaining publicly and to the press that that was having a dampening effect on organizing efforts and we speculated at the time how true that may be. I think this million dollar fund is 
partly to kind of push back on that. And, and by the way, this is a normal twist and turn in these types of campaigns, right? In a big campaign, in the Walmart campaigns and in other campaigns, it's, it's 100% common to have a strike fund set up. The idea here is if you, if you go and strike and you leave the workplace, that the strike fund is going to pay your wages for the day. So you don't, you don't miss your bills or whatever. And unions in these union organizing efforts, that has become a important tool in the toolbox because obviously workers, you know, don't want to miss a paycheck or can't afford to miss, you know, three days because they're on strike or a week or two weeks. And so the strike fund replaces those wages. For me, Joe, if I could go protest outside my employer for an hour and get paid for a full day's work, that would be tempting um, to do. You know, you may see me outside align public strategies with a picket sign if a strike fund ever emerges. So, you know, I think I think the company and and, you know, Opponents of unions would argue that this incentivizes maybe workers to go on strike or to join the union. So, look, we're in this back and forth now. This is the gamesmanship of kind of the uh, the organizing effort now. It changes the dynamics. This is not the first dynamic change. We've got many more ahead of us, but it does. I think it does help to put the union a little bit back on the front foot where they were complaining and saying publicly over the past couple of weeks, they were in the back foot. Franklin, two quick questions to wrap this segment up. First question, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being absolute certainty, what is the likelihood that million dollars originated with the SEIU? Well, the SEIU or one of their affiliates or subsidiaries are 100,000 million infinity percent. The check was cut with a 202 area code, right? Yeah, or a five or a, a 212. But yeah, it's, it's, you know, there's no, whether it came out of one of the affiliated C4, C3s, you know, or the SEIU International, or, a, or it's all the same. Maurice is passing the hat. Let's just say that. That, that, that is definitely, definitely. All right. So part B, part B of that question, the unions put in a million dollars to bolster striking baristas. A, is that an indication that the unions are doubling down and they are reaffirming their commitment to see this thing through? Yeah. And I mean, heck I would, if I had 115 units organized. And so here's the other thing we have not seen yet, you know, so we keep hinting at like, this is another move in the gamesmanship and da da da, and this will continue out. We have seen strikes at Starbucks, but they have been, a store here, a store there in response to kind of local dynamics, you know, someone gets fired and so the workers go and strike, you know, ice machine breaks, workers go and strike, you know, locations too hot. There's not enough workers, whatever they go and strike. And we've seen this, by the way, we haven't really reported on it, but like stores are getting shut down and people are walking out and strike like every 10 days, like within these 280 or 300 units, it's happening all the time. But it's it's due to local dynamics. We have not yet seen, Joe, a big national strike where at 300 locations, 300 locations are in the process of organizing. So there's probably like another four, let's call it 500 locations where there's like some inkling of organizing where they can legitimately could maybe organize a strike. When you start putting a million dollars in a strike fund, now we're talking about like, are they going to do a coordinated national walkout and strike? 
And so a million dollar fund, I'd like to see it more like $3 million, but if you can throw a million dollars in overnight, you can throw $3 million in overnight. You can start seeing like these national walkouts that affect 400 stores at once and are coordinated. And so when we talk about like if Starbucks and corporate doesn't come to the bargaining table and it starts to amp up, the campaign starts to amp up, we'll start to see national strikes and walkouts. We'll start to see the corporate campaigns ramping up. All that stuff will, and the difference between this and like McDonald's, we talk about McDonald's fight for 15 strikes. Those were protests. Those weren't real strikes. Like fight for 15 success doing a national day of action against McDonald's was shutting down like 10 locations for like an hour. They could legitimately probably shut down a bunch, like hundreds of units for extended periods of time. That, that, that stuff starts to matter kind of operationally. So, Joe, that, that's I think we've said enough in this segment, but that's where we're that's where I see this headed. Those are the kind of the next dominoes that will fall in this escalation. Uh, and one thing I hate to hate to to add one more thing onto that, but I, I do think it's noteworthy for the audience that you know news broke over this weekend that um, one of the original stores that voted for unionization, Ithaca, New York, Starbucks Union, Ithaca, New York, uh, has been closed by the company, and so those workers are claiming. Uh, that it was closed as a result of their unionization activity. So that's a that's a that's a big legal dust up uh, on the horizon. Uh, yeah. I know Dollar, Dollar General is going through that uh, right now for a store they closed about two years ago. I mean, we talked about, about, about Great Lakes Coffee <clears throat> last week or the, yeah. the week before. Yeah, this will these will serve as test cases, and you know what fits the criterion. There's very legitimate reasons an operator can set, shut down a store. Right. Independent of organizing efforts, you can have an organizing effort at a store and the store was scheduled for shutdown and there can be a legitimate reason to shut down the store. Now, this NLRB is likely to view legitimate reason by a different definition than the Trump NLRB. And so we're getting ready to find out how this NLRB views legitimate reason to shut down a store. Well, Franklin, we talked briefly on the last pod, I think the pod before that, about these Growing social issues have absolutely nothing to do with the restaurant industry. We were talking about the developments in the abortion uh, space and obviously what's going on with the, the gun chaos of the last few weeks. And, you know, we, we, we surmise that brands would either be, you know, pressured by either boards or shareholders or employees to make some public statement on the subjects or they would, you know, do it on their own. And lo and behold, Last week, an old friend of ours at Align Public Strategies, uh, Chip Wade, the president of Union Square Hospitality Group, came out with a pretty strong statement that enough is enough on the gun on the gun front. What do you make of all that? Well, you know that they made a decision that was Im- important for the company to get out front in that, and uh, that's legitimate. You know, if if a company determines that it's company culture that it has to stand on an issue, whether it's Disney and LGBTQ or whether it's Union Square and guns, then uh, I, I hear you, Dix and 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 Walmart and others have made different stands, but have have made stands on guns in the past. What I wanted to flag relevant to this conversation was the changing political dynamics around this, and so that doesn't mean that you don't make that statement on guns or abortion, right? We've got Starbucks is getting out there in the abortion space, being very strong that its healthcare 
programs and benefits are going to be expanded to include travel costs for abortion and gender affirming surgeries, right? So that's a decision. Those brands are making decisions that are consistent with their company culture. The politics around this are, are changing slightly. And, and what happened at the end of last week, relative to this conversation, is Governor DeSantis axed $35 million in funding for the Tampa Bay Rays because of their position own guns. And so Tampa Bay Rays, like a lot of sports franchise and a lot of, we've seen a lot of NBA players. We've seen actually uh, sports personalities on ESPN and other places really getting into the gun conversation, expressing their frustration and, and demanding action. Tampa Bay Rays kind of followed in that. And, you know, Ron DeSantis now, you know, the DeSantis, DeSantis and the DeSantis team are kind of framing it that, you know, it's not a quid pro quo. If it were, that would be kind of political retribution that would that would potentially, like with the Disney situation, that would potentially make it invalid under law, right? So it was kind of framed not as retribution, but just he was going through the the budget and kind of slashing items. But I think most of the reporting and- We all know better. And the governor's own comments, it was kind of a, a little bit of a wink and a nod. You can read his comments, but you can read through the reporting and make a determination on your own. I would argue that that you can't separate the two, um, just like you can't separate the two with Disney. And so we're in a little different era where, you know, we, we've, we've kind of thought about workplace issues and we've got to be mindful of how we approach tipping because, you know, it's not going to play in blue jurisdictions. And we've always kind of thought about, you know, free reign a little bit in red jurisdictions, the boots and the suits. This is like a common theme we've been talking about for five years in this podcast. So I'm not going to rehash all that, but, but it's amping up more and more. And Ron DeSantis is basically the voice of the Republican party for all practical purposes right now. He's a driving leading voice. And he is really, I think, pushing the conservative kind of movement, the Republican party in this direction where weaponizing woke corporation stances on one thing and another. Now, does Union Square Hospitality have $35 million in the state of Florida budget that the governor? No, right? Does Union Square have hospitality, anything they need from the state of Florida? I don't know, probably not, right? But like, but that's a calculus. And should Union Square Hospitality take this position they took last week? Probably, it probably makes sense. But are they thinking through, I'm not sure they are, are all companies thinking through these potential challenges? You should be. You should be thinking about these kind of changing political dynamics. At the end of the day, probably is not going to impact your, your decision. That's fine. But it's a new environment in a lot of these red jurisdictions. And so that's what I wanted to flag, Joe, as part of this conversation is, you know, it's just, it's a new dynamic. And there's a lot of kind of headhunting on, on the Republican side of things, which we're not totally accustomed to, because this stuff plays really well in those conservative networks. And the gun issue, the abortion issue, all this stuff that really are kind of 50-50, kind of super intense political issues. If you're wading into them, you need to kind of think through and maybe recalibrate recal kind of your calculus a little bit around them. Well, what the uh, what, uh... Union Square Hospitality Group is committing $50,000 uh, toward gun safety. They're going to run forums for gun violence, uh, on gun violence for employees. Uh, interestingly, they're going to uh, you know, pro proactively rally company workers to attend 
uh, anti-violence march this month withhold support from many politicians that oppose gun safety legislation. Wasn't and real aware. That- Joe, sorry to interrupt you, but that's the piece that potentially gets you sideways with like a Ron DeSantis or someone else. I'm not, again, I'm not saying Union Square hospitality shouldn't do it. I'm just pointing out that when you, yeah. all the other stuff is, you know, pretty much beyond reproach. That last piece is where you're now stepping in very purposefully into the p- political domain. And that's where, you know, Anyway, sorry to interrupt you, Jeff. Go ahead. No, I just, you know, I wasn't aware that they really were active in the political contribution space to a, to a big level. So I don't know what that means from a dollars and cents, but it is it is a stand, uh, Chip Ways, to be, you know, congratulating for doing what was right for his company culture and for his employees. It may not be the right formula for other company cultures and other employee sets, but certainly for Union Square Hospitality Group. And um, so it's an is- I- I- issue that we will continue to follow. It's time for Legislative Scorecard. We go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments. And Franklin, we have been following for some time on this pod the the effort to make sure that uh, app-based drivers and these independent contractors are getting more and more of traditional labor and employment benefits and safety nets. And lo and behold, the Seattle City Council made Seattle the first city in the country to enact, to apply minimum wage laws to app-based drivers. They've been at this forever and, you know, it was hung up in court forever that they were essentially creating kind of a collective bargaining regime there around app-based drivers. But uh, yeah, done deal. And uh, we'll keep watching this stuff because it it does set the market and it does bleed over into these kind of joint employer, independent contractor type issues. Franklin, pop quiz, do you know the minimum wages in Seattle? $15 an hour. $17.27 an hour. Oh, for the app-based drivers. Yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. All right. Switching down I-5 to California, uh, the Assembly passed Franklin legislation barring employers from firing employees or denying job applicants who test positive for cannabis. What do you think? Yeah. So we've talked about this in the pod before. You can go back and listen to the previous episodes. We had a uh, employer from Colorado and guys like a year ago or something to talk about the challenges around this. But look, when you have medical marijuana and you have workers that are, have a prescription for medical marijuana, then, you know, you run into these, these types of challenges, right? That that's allowed under California law. Um, But how are you going to have a drug-free workplace when, you know, so there's all kinds of challenges here for employers to think through the assembly passes legislation. I, I do not. I did not get the sense that it was charging through. That it was there was some uncertainty around this, and that it it kind of faces an uphill battle in the Senate. This may not make it over the finish line this year in California, but this is a conversation that is not going away anytime soon. And employers are going to have to continue to grapple with this space. It is different in every state. It is tough to navigate. There's all sorts of liability issues. And you're going to have to continue to work through this. It's going to be a, a tough space for many years to come. Yeah, I think it passed with like the bare minimum of 41 or 42 votes in the assembly, like like no votes to spare. Uh, and it has previous machinations of this legislation have died in the, in the state Senate. And you know, it's a good chance that could happen again. Franklin, switching to across the country to my old stomping grounds, Annapolis, Maryland. We haven't talked about universal basic income in a while. We haven't we haven't talked about it, but the the slow march has uh, 
has continued. There's a lot of cities that are running small pilots, and that's what Annapolis is doing, 800000 for a pilot program. Joe, we basically had a universal basic income during the pandemic. You know, the federal government pumped out uh, money to all of us. We got it in different ways, um, some through PPP, some through, you know, direct relief in our in paychecks, you know, so some through unemployment insurance, enhanced unemployment insurance, essentially act as a universal basic income. So, you know, we'll see, we'll see how this, this works out. I think this is a concept is here to, to stick around. I don't think it's going to be everywhere. I don't think we're going to have a national universal basic income. I think we're going to have more and more cities continuing to tinker. And, you know, it has potential interesting impacts in the labor market. So it, it's something, something to keep an eye on. Yeah, they're, they're taking $800,000. They're dividing up $500 a month to 100 families as a test from COVID relief, federal COVID relief dollars they've got to get rid of. So they're, they're putting it in this, putting it to, in, in, to use this way. They're, you know, the, 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 the conventional wisdom among proponents is that data suggests that recipients are using this on the proper things and, you know, food and, and, and shelter and not wasting it on lottery tickets. Who knows if that's accurate or not. But uh, right up the street, Baltimore, city of Baltimore has been playing with a UBI program for the last couple of years. So a lot happening in that in that space. Uh, obviously, the Stockton, California uh, program is still underway. So it's something to keep an eye on. Franklin, we talked last week on the pod about the FAST Act in California it looks like it's. It was the, the committee hearing that we talked about last week was delayed. It's going to take place this week, supposedly. Delayed again. Oh, I my sm- goodness. I smell a nervous bill sponsor and committee chairman, Joe. So I did, delayed back-to-back weeks is his, would generally be an indication that uh, folks are worried that the ducks are not in a row and the votes yeah. are not solid. And so – that's a great development for the industry. You know what that means? It's time to triple down on hammering legislators. I mean, you do not let off the gas when, you know, you've got potentially some some concerns. And here's the other thing, too, is they will amend this bill to get it out. And so, you know, we want to push this bill. We, we need to hammer down. We need to hammer down now to ensure that this thing just never sees the light of day. So um, delayed again, TBD on, on when this thing's going to be scheduled again, but we'll, we'll just have to keep watching. In the meantime, every brand needs to reach out to IFA, CRA, and get involved in this conversation. Franklin, will this, what I was going to say is there was a, a commensurate kind of workout, a day of action on June 9th, uh, demonstrators going statewide. Will they still go forward with that, with that event or delay that as well, do you think? I suspect they'll probably still go forward with that. And so that's a good flag, Joe. Operators need to be wary in those markets. A lot of them are in Southern California. I'm going through here to see if I have them in front of me. Maybe by the end, when we get to labor activism, I can get those markets up and and read them out. But you may get disruptions in in, in those markets this coming Thursday. Franklin, uh, speaking of disruption in markets, Five Intelligentsia, the local coffee shop operation in Chicago, plus their warehouse, have filed for union representation uh, by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. But in this particular case, the IBEW is saying that all five 
should be considered one bargaining unit, which is precisely the opposite strategy that the SEIU is taking in the Starbucks campaign, where they're saying each individual unit uh, should be considered its own bargaining unit. What is going on in union world? Well, it's just gamesmanship. They just have the votes in those locations. And so, you know, the the union, the employer always fight over defining the bargaining unit in, in the way that's most most helpful to them. And so that that's what's happening here. It's worth noting, too, that the IBEW is the union that the Collectivo Coffee Workers have affiliated with, too. So IBEW in that market is getting a real foothold in kind of that that coffee in the in the restaurant industry continues to show there's something more going on here than the SEIU nationally organizing in the coffee sector in the restaurant sector it's you know this is kind of popping up organically so uh yeah a couple things to watch here that'll be an interesting election and we had a little individual election at another coffee shop man the coffee sector is upside down in of all places franklin missoula montana yeah, you know, and would you would you characterize Missoula as like a tourism destination? I think I would. Like a like a resort town or is it too I wouldn't say it is a resort town. It's, you know, it's it's probably one of, you know, there aren't aren't a lot a lot of big cities in Montana. It's one of the bigger. That's for sure. I'm a, I'm going to I'm a, I'm going to call resort town. Okay. We go to the Google machine. But you, you know, you kind of so Look, Montana, South Carolina, you know, these union elections are are kind of popping up everywhere. Resort towns where you have kind of a labor pinch or seasonal workforces, right? People coming in for mountain biking or fly fishing or or whatever it may be. You you have an even more intense kind of labor pinch during those time periods, gives more leverage. So I'm not I'm not surprised. One Montana, you've got it popping if you got it popping up Montana, you got it popping up everywhere. But then also you know, there's these specific markets where there's labor pinches where I think the union has more leverage. And I would I would characterize this. I'd put this in that category, too. So, yeah, third wave workers, they're organizing it themselves. Again, this is not Workers United, right? Like this is another kind of local thing. They want $13 an hour, Joe, and a new paid leave policy. So here we go. Frank, on one issue, uh, we haven't talked about paid leave in a while. That's been quite quiet. But another quiet issue has been the scheduling issue. We have not talked about mandated scheduling proposals in a long while. But lo and behold, the town of Evanston, Illinois, the home of Northwestern University and, and a neighbor uh, shares a common border with the city of Chicago, has got a little Chicago envy and looking to replicate their scheduling law. Yeah, and I'd have to... I, I had to remember back. I think, I think Cook County had something weird where they allowed municipality. I, I don't remember. We had to go back and and check. I think that was the wage issue. They were letting them opt out on the wage issue. That's for You're sure. Right. You're right. You're right. So Evanston, look, they're looking at scheduling. You know, written estimate of days and hours prior to and upon employment, post work uh, ten days in advance. 50% of their pay loss. It's pretty standard components, Joe. You, you can go through them if, if you want. Um, but they're workshopping it. They're talking about it. I think the reason that we, we're flagging it and we worry about it is this Cook County stuff, you, you know, Evanston is a ways out. But whatever, we, we have energy in there. You can get – this stuff can scale up 
quickly in that metro Chicago area. And so anything around, in and around Illinois, any conversations at the state level can spill back down to Chicago and vice versa. So any conversation is bad conversation for us in this. Yeah, I think it's just, and I think it's just that a conversation at this at this point. I think they're kind of playing around. Uh, there was no vote taken; it was just a, a little bit of a hearing. So we'll that'll be one we put on the old the old tracker. And lastly, Franklin um, extended producer responsibility legislation in New York kind of died with the end of session. It never really got on track. I was surprised. I would have thought New York would have been, you know, one of those definite states that we had to pay, pay attention to on the EPR. Original uh, language was included in the governor's budget, uh, then taken out, introduces freestanding legislation. And that ultimately really just never got going. I guess they just ran out of time. Does that surprise you a little bit, Franklin? A little bit, man. But like EPR in New York City, having to kind of redo all the waste streams and collection and all that kind of stuff, like that is going to be a nightmare. So I, I can understand why there was that is, is it's not going to be an easy to, issue to to tackle anywhere, but particularly in these big cities where you don't have any room to put extra bins or whatever. So I guess I'm not surprised it's taking a little longer than expected. Um, Joe, one last item before we close out. I do have that list of protest uh, locations for the statewide walkout. This was, in California, you're talking about? Yeah. So this is where operators need. Operators across the state should be on their P's and Q's, particularly if Fight for 15 has been in there at any point. But specifically, L.A., Oakland, Sacramento, San Diego, that's the SEAU has specifically announced there will be walkouts in those markets. So those are ones to uh, look out for if you if you have operations there. And not to just totally wrap our audience in a pretzel, but going back to the New York EPR thing, you know, also, as we learned from seven seasons of the Sopranos that uh, the New York refuse business has a few other uninvited business partners in many places. And so that's probably a complicated uh, factor you've got to work out in the EPR <laughs> program in the state of New 100%. York. Yeah. So anyway, interesting, interesting way we have not uh, talked about that on the scorecard before, but uh, there's always, there's always a first time. Well, Frank, on another week, another pod, wanted to flag one article before we left uh, for folks. The Wall Street Journal had an article last week that was talking about uh, the difficulty in downtowns. Commuter rates are still anemic uh, post-pandemic, still a lot of empty office space, which means a lot of empty bars and restaurants, which means a lot of restaurants and bars still struggling to stay afloat. And, uh, you know, it's, it dawned on me. That, you know, there's always a struggle in this industry in terms of advocacy, the big guys versus the small guys. This is one of those issues where, you know, our association partners are really going to be focused on helping those independents. And the more they help those independents, the more the, the big boys get their nose out of joint. So it's a developing story that people ought to watch, you know, that in terms of the, the rising tide lifts all boats, but a sinking tide can really make political fault lines in a very cohesive industry. So it's a challenge for our association execs at the federal and state and local level. And so just something to be aware of. And on that note, I hope everybody had a great week. Looking forward to another good week. Uh, we'll talk to you next week. Until then, stay safe, stay informed. 